I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about? If you have time, I can tell you that it is a podcast about Batman and a Batman podcast. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a Welcome back to Batman the Animated Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Michael, and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon, Batman the Animated Series. Today's sponsor, the Gotham Horse Show. Don't come. It's prominently featured, but it's canceled. Guys, it has been a while. To commemorate the podcast's return after a long hiatus, I'm kicking things off with one of my favorite interviews yet, Inside Out co-director Ronnie Del Carmen. Stick around after the interview for updates on future episodes, slight changes to the podcast format, and what the future holds. All right, with that out of the way, let's get to what you're here for. Today's episode, Fear of Victory. The Scarecrow has come up with a fear chemical triggered by the release of adrenaline and uses it on Gotham's greatest athletes, specifically Dick Grayson's college roommate, who we've never seen before and never see again. But when Robin is exposed to the chemical as well, he becomes paralyzed with fear and must overcome it to help defeat the Scarecrow. Original air date, September 29th, 1992. Written by Samuel Warren Joseph, directed by Dick Seabast. Supervising composer Shirley Walker. Music by Lisa Bloom and Carlos Rodriguez, with animation services by Tokyo Movie Shinsha Company. Featuring Kevin Conroy as Batman, Lauren Lester as Robin, Bob Hastings as Commissioner Gordon, Mark Hamill as the Joker, Brian Mitchell as Brian Rogers, you know, the roommate, Chuck Moshance as Bozeman, and Henry Pollock as the Scarecrow. Not to mention Tim Curry as the coveted role of additional voice, no doubt from when he played the Joker before being replaced down the line. So we won't be deep diving into the episode specifics with the guest as much this time, so a few stray thoughts before we dive into the interview. So I'm pretty sure this is the Scarecrow's first design change, and it's the most iconic for his early Batman appearances. It's been a while since I watched this one, because I think I just didn't like sports so much as a kid that I avoided a cartoon episode about sports, which is wild. Uh, But it's fun. Now, sure, it's a little upsetting. Batman casually animal tests cats in the Batcave. I'm not sure where all of those cats came from. And sure, it's weird that telegrams factor into this story so prominently, from fake ones to real ones. And sure, it's kind of weird that Dick Grayson feels like he has the inalienable right to just hop down on the field in the middle of a professional football game without a second thought. You know what? The animation was pretty good. The Arkham Asylum cameo parade was great. And I will firmly stand behind any episode that spends this much time on fake bloopers. Bozeman's bloopers, baby. Bring them back. Okay, moving on to today's guest, Ronnie Del Carmen. You guys might know Ronnie Best as co-director of Pixar's Inside Out or for his instrumental roles at the studio as board artist, story supervisor, or both on everything from Coco and Up to WALL-E and Finding Nemo. But before he became a fixture in Emeryville and even before he worked on seminal DreamWorks films like The Prince of Egypt, Ronnie got his start as a storyboard artist on Batman the Animated Series. He even won an Eisner for the Batman Adventures Holiday Special for Best Single Issue, guys. Ronnie's got a reputation for being energetic, open, affirming, and, you know, I think you'll hear it shine through in the interview. I had a great time chatting with him. He's a genuinely kind and talented dude who clearly deserves the storied career he's built for himself. So please, enjoy. Well, here we are. I'm sitting across from Ronnie Del Carmen. We're at Pixar. This is a real treat for me. How are you? I'm doing good. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a nice, beautiful, rainy day outside, so it's very comfy. 
and cozy. Yeah. <laughs> I got coffee. This is what fuels animated features. Uh, we make movies with this. I'm so excited to be sitting down with you because obviously this is a show about Batman the Animated Series, mm. but I'm also a huge fan of your other work. Oh, I love well. what you do, love mm. what you make. So thank you. excited to talk about all of it. All of it? All of it. Every <laughs> single thing will be here for nine hours. Oh my <laughs> goodness. Maybe it's... All of 15 minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's no, I, all of that. Sincerely right. doubt that. <laughs> uh, but I kind of wanted to start at, at the beginning, really. What, mm-hmm. what got you interested in animation oh. as a kid? Were, were uh, you interested? As, yeah, as a kid, I was in the Philippines watching animation incessantly. Uh, we only had four channels. And one of them is dedicated to American programming. And there would be cartoons. And as a kid, you're always going to want to watch cartoons. My parents had a problem with that. Why are you always watching cartoons? I don't know, but I'm always in front of the TV. And then um, I'd wanted to go to Disneyland for so long because the wonderful world of color is one of those shows. This is in the early 60s. And I would be obsessed that I would pester my parents and say, can we go to Disneyland? Are we going to go to Disneyland? And then they will humor me and say, it's like, yeah, 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 because you're like maybe five or six and then. And then one day I get old enough where they have to tell me that actually we can't go to Disneyland. Why? It's in a different country. Mm, can we drive there? Not, no. <laughs> Not even if you drive for a long time? No. You have to take a plane. Whoa, can we do that? No. <laughs> We're poor. We can't do that. Wow. So my dreams of actually being around where cartoons are, where Uncle Walt is, just just crashed and burned when I was young. But all I wanted to do just watch the cartoons. I don't. I didn't want to make them. What kind of cartoons did you watch on that channel? That like. Was well, there's all of them. Actually, everything from Harvey Tunes, uh, all of the old Popeyes, you know, uh-huh. the King Feature ones, and. Um, there would be Alvin and the Chipmunks, and those are the old uh, Bagdasarian ones, and then. Um, there would be um, uh, Baby Huey and um, Beanie and Cecil. Uh, of course, everything that uh, was in the wonderful world uh, of color. Uh, so I was obsessed with uh, Professor Ludwig von Drake. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. I grew up on a VHS of so, Ludwig von Drake, yes. you know, like kind of singing or, or conducting Con- songs and stuff. Yes, you know, he <laughs> would teach you about color. And I would be so obsessed with those things. Um, and I, I would be distraught if I missed an episode. Or sometimes an episode is not about cartoons. Mm-hmm. It'll be like a nature show. And you're like, what? <laughs> I don't want to see bears. I don't want to. I don't want to see that. But uh, there are days where, because it's it's rebroadcast in the Philippines. It's probably a couple of years past when it was broadcast here in the U.S. And they would just have a blank Sunday, and I wouldn't know what to do with myself. I'd be like, what? I felt like something is wrong with the universe. Why isn't it on? So I would be, I would be completely messed up by that. Now, you have two brothers who also work in animation? Yes, I have two brothers who also work in animation. All of us are actually uh, in, uh, you know, well-placed. Uh, and and uh, the news is none of us actually studied animation. That's wild. So how... Why do you think all of you got involved in animation? Was it like an animation household? Was it, did you go watch it together? Not or? really. Uh, my brothers and I also played guitar. We all were guitar players, but we never played guitar together. We never drew together. And it's just that it was my fascination. I'm the oldest, and then it became their fascination. I didn't find that strange because doesn't everybody draw? Doesn't everybody think about uh, sci-fi and... and, and um, comics and cartoons and then later on we found out that actually not everybody is even especially in the philippines yeah living in a small town about two or three hours away from manila where everything happens nothing happens in our small town so it just felt like yeah we're kind of a little off Hmm. from everyone else but no none of us actually thought of of studying animation and none of us actually did we fell into the animation industry yeah, you went to college for advertising? I went and, and studied fine arts and majored in advertising. Okay. It's about advertising production, which is it means that it, it teaches you how to make magazine and newspaper ads. And um, that's it. But it's all-time production work that eventually becomes completely useless once the personal computer shows up. 
Uh, do you feel like you, well, what did you gain from that experience, I guess, that you utilize now? Do you feel like there are things that you learned in school, even though it wasn't directly related to well, animation? It, it, it allowed me to, to think about uh, studying for uh, art, studying art in a way that makes it feel like it's like a job. You're not going to starve or maybe at least you'll eat. That's the main thing. If you're growing up in the time when I did, it's all about the practicalities of life. Are you going to be able to you know, buy food? Right. How will you survive? How will you survive? Doing an artistic and, thing. Yes. And that was the main thing because the, the, the predominant um, feeling about arts is that you probably starve. You, there, you won't find work. There's no such thing as mm -hmm. an industry. And they were right. My father was worried for the right reasons. But n nobody knew that there would be actual employment. Even when I was working in advertising, it didn't pay a lot of money. But at least it paid you something. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's that level where you're like, I have a job and I'm doing something near what I want to be yes. doing. Yes. And we're kind of like self-taught in terms of drawing because I drew incessantly anyway. Didn't know there was any real application to it other than I liked doing it. And if I had the time, I would keep drawing. Yeah. So that's probably most of it is me kind of training myself because I enjoyed it and I liked doing it. And that's mostly the foundational thing that allowed me at least to qualify for a job in, in animation. Not that I actually did qualify. <laughs> I feel like nobody thinks that they qualify. Yeah, and somehow it's very hard. End up it's it. very hard. I actually tried talking myself out of work. Really? I was, when I landed in, in, in Burbank, all the jobs that I took were non-animation jobs, and there weren't a lot of it. Like, yeah, I'm just going to go and do this. Oh, by the way, Ronnie, they've got these jobs here. This is Animation City here in Burbank. And like, yeah, no, thank you. What do you think that was about? Well, because I had a very bad animation teacher in, in school, and he wasn't really up to teaching it, and he didn't know anything about it, so he, he just ruined it for me. I just felt like if there's one thing I know I'm not going to do, it would be animation. I'm not going to do that. So when I was looking for work, needing it, and the option is animation, I would say, um, thanks, but uh, I'm going to look somewhere else. I know else. what this one person is like, and I don't want to be. I don't <laughs> want to become an animator. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. And uh, it's too late. Everybody studies it. I'm 30, 31 years old already, and I'm not going to survive there. And when people wanted to hire me, when I applied, and I would tell them, it's like, I got full disclosure, I know nothing about animation. I have a portfolio where it shows that I can draw and I can, but I don't know anything about it. So the first few jobs says, oh, don't worry, you'll learn. Uh, okay, it's your funeral. <laughs> and then I started to like it. I, I understood it, and I started to get better at it. Uh, that was fascinating, because it, it was about storytelling. I didn't know that at the time. I felt like, this is great. I can shape characters and make them behave. How do you do timing? How do you do model sheets? How do you, so I was just very curious. You're just curious and. I, yes, I just felt like, I can do this. This is, this is fun. It feels like to be kind of like a multi-hyphenate type person, you have to want to learn new things. Yeah, 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 I think so. And I, because I, I think that I set the bar so low that everything is so new anyway that I felt like, well, what could have hurt for me to know more about this or that, whatever. By the time I joined Batman the Animated Series, I was not a very accomplished storyboard artist for TV. And by the time that their port the portfolio was being reviewed, by Kevin Altieri, actually, um, they were already booked. They had a full complement of storyboard artists, and mm -hmm. they probably could use one more, but they weren't in a hurry to hire one. And I showed it to Kevin, and then um, the next day I got called back, and there was a meeting with Bruce. And then he was flipping through the book, and then it's like, so, what do you want to do? I felt like, um, character design? <laughs> and he says, you'll do storyboard. Okay, you start next week. That was it? Yes. What was that? How did you get the interview? How, you just submitted a portfolio? I submitted a portfolio. A, a friend of mine who I work with at Deke said that, you know, I'm here. I'm doing backgrounds. Come and say hi, and maybe you should bring your book. And I was just like, sure. 
I'm out of work then. Yeah. And then I just decided I'm going to leave my book. And then because like, yeah, thank you. It's like I couldn't even have lunch with my friend because he's like, I got to do this thing, but I'll take your book. And he left it at uh, the director's table. And then they all called me back. That's great. Yeah. What was your first impression sitting down with Bruce? Like, was it intimidating? Uh, was it? Um, not really. I mean, he was very much, you know, very businesslike. Mm -hmm. Eventually, we became really good friends, but it, it was the same Bruce that I would encounter years later. It's the yeah. same. He would just look at this, like, oh, this is good. Where'd you get that? How about this? Mm, good. All right. Start next week. <laughs> good. And I started, and I didn't know everything. I kind of started to feel my way around, got uh, tutoring from uh, one of the directors, Dick Sebast, and he was great. He kind of, kind of walked me through cinematic language. All the other storyboard artists there had more mileage than I did. And um, I just started to love the work. There's a lot of latitude to tell these stories, even though you have to stay really faithful to the script. Being a fan of comic books helps. Yes. I'm a big Batman fan, so I feel like, really? I get to draw Batman for work. What did you grow up reading? What were... I, I grew up uh, reading, uh, if it was DC, it would be Batman, and, uh, and mostly it's more Marvel. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would treasure the few comic books that I had, and, and I would read them over and over again, and I would love to draw. I, I studied drawing Batman's face when I was younger, and... That would be, you know, like, how do you do the shadow on this? <laughs> how do you do his cowl? Didn't even know that's what it was called back then. But then, wow. And so all of those things you get to do on a show about Batman. And you can tell cinematic stories with him. And because of the relationship of the storyboard artists with the directors and Bruce being a big fan, they know that their values are different from the rest of the industry in that we're not trying to turn in an everyday job. Let's get the things that we love about this in here. Let's see what we can do with it. That's awesome. It felt like, I mean, it's a very filmic show. Yes. Uh, were, were there films that you drew from uh, in particular? Or no, we, we were all kind of um, marinating in a lot of film noir and uh, we were all fans of essentially the same kind of movies and the kind of tones that it is. You know, anything from uh, Frankenstein movies, Lady from Shanghai, mm -hmm. and all of those things, they show up because these, these were our fascinations. Like, man, I found my people. These are the people that I would have, should have been talking to since I was a kid. Huh. And we were geeking out on anything. I, there would be times when it would be me, Bruce, and Glenn, and a bunch of other people. So our job is to draw every day and design, whatever. And then on our breaks, at the end of the day, kind of like, there's a bar underneath the Shemanos uh, Galleria. Mm -hmm. We just take the elevator down, and we would have beers. And while we're having beers, we would have drawing pads, and we would be drawing. And all we'd be drawing are things that we were fascinated with. We would draw kind of, there would be a game we're in. Hey, you know how um, Gene Colan draws hands? And I would draw it. <laughs> and then Bruce is like, yeah, I know that. How about this? He does this too. And it was just Jack Kirby hands. We would do hand. We would do a whole afternoon of just hands. Oh, I love Kirby. Yes. I mean, who doesn't? Yes. And then there will be a time where we'll just do uh, Milt Kniff or uh, Frank Robbins or whatever. Anything. Just because we're fans of those things, it ends up in the work. And when you're taking a break, that's what you do too. So you're, you're in with a particular slice of nerddom. Yes or pros, and um, we would draw our storyboards in certain styles. They're never going to look like that in the show. They're going to be animated overseas. But our storyboards are like comic books. I feel like the boards on that show are so much more detailed than the boards that I see these days. Yes. It's in the same type of animation. Yeah, we, we were all frustrated comic book artists, and, <laughs> and, and Bruce also was like that. So his storyboards were like comic book pages, and I like doing that too. So, and a bunch of us do. So we, we really take pains to actually make it feel like you could publish these. Yeah. Somebody so. should publish those now. Yes. I mean, okay. I don't know who has the rights yeah. to them, but I feel like you could release the boards for that show. And yes. People would love learning. And, and, and it is great learning. And also there's a lot of uh, technical notation that's there that you could learn from. Mm -hmm. Because as storyboard artists, you're kind of in charge of 
um, the cinematic pace and what happens in the sh and also there's a lot of technical indications in each of those boards you know overlays and pans and and uh, how many steps to go to the door yeah um, things like that and then when the slugs it, sometimes I would break down certain movements outside of the frame so that I know that when the person has to time it can at least catch that oh he means for these movements to happen so hopefully when someone's timing it either when it's being slugged or we're in the timing sheet hopefully it might influence that hopefully it makes it in there and hopefully it influences the overseas company to kind of draw it that way do you remember what your first episode was that you boarded uh my first episode was a uh a scarecrow show and i loved it i forget exactly which one it was it was the old scarecrow design and um he had it was it was scarecrow actually messing with um some sports games. I oh think. yeah, fear I of victory. Yeah, fear of victory. Yes. There you go. James, you have a nerd remember. who knows the names. Yes. <laughs> so that was fun because I I, I love the designs of the characters, including Robin, and I feel like, and I got this scene of them walking around the stadium, you know. And I made it so moody, and I kind of liked the stage. That I kind of lucked into knowing kind of what it needed. I felt like, hey, this is easy. I just nailed this. I, I got the middle part of the act. But uh, directly after that, I got another scene right after that, and I was just, I had no idea what to do with it. <laughs> but eventually I asked for help, and I got more, I got more training. It felt like a very collaborative show. Well, we're all friends and, and competitive. All the storyboard artists want to outdo each other. <laughs> and um, we all kind of try and get ourselves out of bind. Sometimes it's like, look, I got myself into this, and then... Uh, I don't know, how, how do I cut from here to there? Like, and then everybody kind of, hmm, you know what you should do, just back up and kind of change this panel and you can make the shorter and like, what if you t shot it from outside the window? Like, so we will kind of workshop the scene. Mm -hmm. And Bruce is, is very, very uh, helpful in kind of setting the tone for the show and making sure that we all kind of live in that world together. I would knock on his door and like, and you can hear him from behind the door. It's like, what? <laughs> and then I'll pop the door open. It's like, come in, shut the door. <laughs> what was his office like? It was, it was a corner office, but it was so full of toys. And then he had a regular desk, but all of it was piled with all sorts of stuff and toys and paid. And he would have like an eight and a half by 11 space that's clear, that's just showing the table. And in the middle of it would be a bond paper size blank piece. And he would have blue pencil and we'll be drawing some pose of Batman mm -hmm. and then inking it eventually with some marker. And, and then I would sit in front of him. Wow. And then I would just chat. I'm not going to do any work. I'm just going to go and chat with Bruce. And then <laughs> for about an hour, I was like, I better get back to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you should. Just like, oh, wait. Oh, I want to step out for a smoke. And then he'd go and step out for a smoke. And <laughs> oh, yeah, this is a job. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you worked on Mask of the Phantasm too? Yes, I worked on Mask of the Phantasm. I had to leave for the most of the production. I went back to the Philippines, but I started the, uh, the first act. And then when I came back, they were still storyboarding and I kind of like did the last scenes. Oh, wow. So beginning and end? Yeah, beginning and end. Wow. And that feels very horror influenced. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, talking about like old kind of Frankenstein, old universal mm -hmm. horror and EC Comics stuff. Mm -hmm. and yeah. I mean, if we had more development time, and if we had uh, ways of making actual reels back then, I think that this is an excellent script. I think that we could have made that into, I, I would redo the darn thing, not trying to change, but I would just kind of enhance and pull that back up to kind of, if we were given all of the chances to kind of like make the camera moves, because it's still a TV production. Yeah, I heard it was very like accelerated schedule for and Not only that, but our limitations, because we only have so many fields that we can kind of move the camera. This is all still all mechanical. Mm -hmm. You're limited by paper and uh, an overseas company who's going to be doing it for you. And But now, you can do almost anything, right? And You can still be moody and spare, but use it in a way that you can accentuate the moments that need accentuating. So that would be awesome to do. Yeah. I mean, I, it's it's one of my favorites, all-time yes, favorite yeah, Batman anything. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, did you have any, were, were there any other like memorable episodes that you worked on or things that you feel proud of on the show? 
Um, I, I, I know that what I did was I also did character design because Bruce let me. So I was just like, I would do designs. I did design uh, Alice for the Mad Hatter show where the Mad Hatter was so enamored of this one girl who worked in his office and he fancied that she was going to be his Alice. So I designed her character design. That's fun. And then there were times when I felt really sneaky and I would s sneak in uh, Jaime Hernandez's character, Hopi. <laughs> I put her in a bus when uh, uh, the penguin was being released from jail. <laughs> I just put Hopi in there in the background, thinking it's like, no one's going to draw Hopi. And then at some point, they're just going to replace that with a different character. I'm not in charge of you know, whether they create a character. But they copied the character, and she, like, was, oh, not, there it is. <laughs> she was not moving anyway. So I felt like, yeah, I just put Hopi in there. You know, <laughs> If I had my druthers, I would have put Maggie on the other side of the seat too. Yeah. <laughs> Were there other things that you got to kind of like sneak in or give it like a personal stamp on the show? Well, mostly it's, it's, it's what we geek out on, like, like uh, the episode of Tiger, Tiger, which it's, it's really, you know, our Frankenstein show. I, I wish that, that I could have gone to town a little more on that one because it's a big monster movie. Yeah. We have this, this giant cat. And uh, I wish that the animation was a little better, but I, I felt like, man, this could be a really awesome show. But I did put as much as I can in the storyboards. I would love to go back in there and produce something like that. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, I think that overall that episode still turned out great. Yes, <laughs> yes. It was, it, it was wonderful to work on. Well, it's also one of the strangest episodes for that series that was like, this is a show about gangsters and grounded villains for the most part. But yes. But also... Yes. Selena Kyle turns into a cat. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. And then I worked on Baby Doll, which ended up being kind of one of my favorite ones to have drawn because you, you have Batman and you want to draw a Batman villain that he can kind of really tangle with. But this one's uh, a, a diminutive person who dresses as a little girl. And uh, we studied Lady from Shanghai to, to do that. And I got all the juicy parts of the end of that and then some parts in the middle. And uh, Dan Reba was the director, and we just and I just staged it as as kind of Batman trying not to harm this girl, who's going to have to encounter the truth about what she is. Yeah, I thought it was one of the most emotionally yes. effective episodes. Yes, of the series. and I love those moments. So I tend to kind of gravitate towards, give me those if you're going to give me because action sequences I can do, but I like those. Yeah. What what draws you to that because I feel like that's sort of where you've ended up too. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and at the time, were you like fully aware of it or was no. it just kind of like an inkling of like, yeah, I just like it? No, no, I didn't know. I get, I keep getting cast in those things. Oh. By, the, by the time I ended up at DreamWorks, when I started to understand what being a story artist is in features, which is very different from being a storyboard artist in animation back then, I was struggling as a story artist until I told them that I this reminds me of my relationship with my brothers and with my mom and these two brothers in Prince of Egypt are much like me and my brothers we always squabble and what we're good friends and we'll yeah. help each other out I started putting myself into stories and because we gotten some training there to uh, acting, uh, acting workshops, which I hated. I didn't want to be an actor. I didn't want to study it. I have no interest in it. Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, seems to be a theme in my life. It was like, I don't like animation. I don't want to do it. Oh, acting, forget about it. I don't want to. And I end up liking the workshops. And it made me a better storyteller because the craft of an actor, those people who, who become actors are really trained to show an interior life, mm -hmm. and not only that, make it so that an audience will watch a performance without words, it would still communicate, what is this person going through? And I like that even better in features because I would capitalize on the faces of, of people without them saying anything. Mm -hmm. And if I want to draw on something that is relatable, it has to feel like another human being can recognize that moment. So the acting training, which does not qualify me to be an actor, allows me to understand that that's what I want 
these animated characters to do. But if I can't feel it, then that means I can't show it. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to. So I better know how to feel it. And then when I do, can I represent it? And when it works, it's amazing. And you, you, we, uh, since then, I've been given all sorts of assignments about characters, usually towards the end of a second act, and there's two people in a room. There's no car chase. There's no building that's going to collapse. There's no monster breaking down the door. There's these two people. They're about to actually talk about the most difficult thing that's happening between them, and it won't be easy to say. I got those, and I love those. And sometimes to the degree where, and that's all I get. It's mm-hmm. like, oh God, well, we have this story. It's like, Ronnie, can you go and show me the story of this character here at the end of the second act? My last one was at Coco, where um, they have to go visit Chicharron. Chicharron actually is on the last legs of his actual afterlife already, and he's about to disappear forever. And they have that moment, and they said, like, you know who should be doing this? Ronnie should be doing this. <laughs> so they told me what they wanted out of it, and I was like, okay, let me see what I can do. And I, and I crafted it with their guidance and help, and then I did it once. And then, okay, thank you very much, goodbye. And then it shows up in a movie, and I was like, that's awesome. You just popped in. <laughs> I just popped in. It was like a guest starring role, and I'm so glad and grateful that they keep it. That's what I do. I mean, I feel like while it's easy to look at kind of like the action-y stuff as like flashier and more exciting from the outside, I think you can do that. That that shows up more often. I think it's a rarer opportunity, at least in animation, to actually get those emotional scenes that Probably. you would see. Yeah. I think it's easier in live action to produce, and yeah. you know, people don't put money into that as mm-hmm. much unless you're at Pixar yeah. or somewhere. You know. Yeah. I know. It's, it's interested it's, in telling those stories. Yeah, yeah, I'm so lucky to be able to do it here. But even back in, in Batman days, um, we talk about those because the, the series itself really capitalizes on how you feel about the characters. Yeah. Because a lot of the action there, I mean, they're really amazing animation in the entire series, but it's usually how you feel about not only the heroes, but also the villains. I think that's such a huge part of what made the show successful. Yes. Yeah. You empathize, even though you know that they've made wrong choices, abominable wrong choices in life, most of the villains, but you kind of understand them. This is the, 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 the team is very proud of that, that we can have fun stuff, flying machines, sci-fi objects, uh, cool chases, great costumes, but it's usually how a character is grappling with something that they are having the most difficult time either avoiding or trying to pursue something with the worst kind of choices, either failing or succeeding. And the consequences are, are to me, emotional, rather than just the spectacle of it, yeah. which is really amazing about the entire series. Not every, every cartoon show will look for those things because there's so much cool stuff to do. No, and even if you do look for them, it's so hard to push that kind of stuff through yes. in like the TV animation machine. Yes, and because most of the people who were there that were part of the crew have had lives before in animation wherein most of the projects are really kind of, yeah, you know, you, you can take it or leave it, yeah. you can have a laugh. But it felt like it caught all of these creators at a point in time wherein they feel that I want to do something that kind of hits you somewhere that most animated product will want to avoid. And that is to, to throw in the most difficult things that, and even the most broken people in there. Eventually, they, 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 they made the, uh, the Joker Returns, right? The right, yeah, Return of the Joker Re- and Return the Batman of Beyond. So I was show. already outside of the studio, and they called me kind of like, you, don't, you sure you don't want a piece of this? Is like, yes, I do. I'm going to take freelance. Oh. What did you end up uh, doing? I, I did actually the first time uh, that you meet. Um, it's early in the first act when you, you, you meet the rogues gallery of the, the Joker. Uh-huh. 
and he, he hasn't been revealed yet. He was a shadowy figure. So, and you just meet this, this gallery of, of who are these, these new villains, you know. And I got the reveal of like who's in the shadows commanding them. You kind oh, of what like, a oh. treat. Yes, it was awesome, the storyboard. And I feel like, yes, I want that. I want that. Please, please give me. He kills somebody in that one. <laughs> yes, he does. Actually. And I was like, yeah, that, that was a uh, dark, that dark was a, movie. That was a dark movie. Oh, it just horrifying in the end what happened. I mean, yeah, the ramifications on that entire universe. <laughs> yes. Like, hey, this is canon, and this child was... Yes. It, how twisted this person became. But the, the opening of that, that movie was like, wow, it's all action. Wow, I'm in. This is awesome. And, oh, boy, what are we in for here? Yeah. That's amazing. That's always an earmark of a, of a Batman crew's um, offerings. And, and, and I still wish that we can do that for animation. I mean, I know that's being done, and I'm just, you know, uh, distanced from it. But I think that episodic TV, or at least episodic product, can go for uh, the depths of emotion, conflict, and stakes. Yeah. That even though it's animated, it's, it's handling very difficult subjects. What do you think people are afraid of when it comes to that? I feel like it is hard to get that kind of stuff made. Well, it's the audience that you're you're vying for, right? Mm-hmm. So your 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 audience becomes very select once you actually go in that route, you know. So um, if your production or production company wants to actually lure in a greater, like qu- all the quadrants in, you probably wouldn't choose to do stories like that, right? But if you don't care about that, then you just care about putting out good stories and, and capturing a certain like segment of the population who would appreciate it. Um, then be prepared that your numbers are not going to be you know that big. At least that's what I think it is. Well, I want to talk about the rest of your career and how oh, you okay. kind of ended up where we are yeah. uh, or where you are. I'm just here for the ride. <laughs> uh, but... It feels like now you do get to tell those stories uh, and you, you get to direct those stories. Yes. Uh, and so I guess what was the journey when you first got to Pixar? I know you were at DreamWorks for a bit too. Yes. Uh, yes. I was at DreamWorks, kind of got to understand what making an animated feature was about. Is that where you really learned kind of the feature side of I animation? kind of like understood that being a story artist was not about getting the script and then just draw it. No, you're kind of involved in crafting the story of the movie and the performances and you are shaping the story you're you're one of the writers although not very many people will give you that that credit because a story artist is not a writer and you have to be part of the writer's guild so even if we write whole moments Mm -hmm. ourselves we will never get a writing credit so weird to compartmentalize like that because we draw it because unless you actually type it and be as the kind of known as the writer for it, and you're, you're not going to get the, the credit for it. But because of that, though, I get to work with writers and performers and um, directors. The language in a writing room, in terms of the encounter, how you banter, how you try something out, how you try characterizations, how shabby that room kind of tries on things. The writing room is one of the most fascinating gifts to a storyteller because free to fail, do whatever that you feel like is an impulse, see if it works or not, and then if it makes you laugh, it makes you feel something, maybe it goes in. You try it. Um, But most of my work at DreamWorks, I just felt like I was missing something, and I felt like, I don't know if I'm any good because the movies weren't that great and some parts of them are great, but I don't know if I'm really doing well because they were willing to keep me. Mm-hmm. I had a contract that led me all the way up to directing there. I had no complaints and paid well, but I had friends who moved up here to Pixar and Pixar's work is amazing. I would sit at the uh, Burbank Media Center and watch Toy Story 2 and I was distraught this movie's amazing. I'm never going to make anything like this. <laughs> really. There was just no way. I mean, I'm here in Burbank, and they're all the way up there. North, and they'll never want anyone 
comes from DreamWorks. But I applied, and then by the time I applied, a friend of mine, Ted Mathot, had brought a lot of my storyboard work with him and then told him, it's like, you should go and look into this guy's work. And, and by the time I got to apply, they was just like, we want you to be part of the studio. <gasps> Great. Then my indoctrination into the ways of storytelling at Pixar began. This is a different studio than all the other studios I've ever been part of. The kind of collaboration that we have here, the inmates actually run this asylum. Down in Los Angeles, we have producers, we have executive producers, and they actually have a lot of weight. Turn the movie into this, that, or the other thing. Hire and fire whoever is going to be part of this movie. And um, the tone of it is governed by all of those high-powered, well-placed producers. Here, the people who make the movie is the director, his story crew, if he has a partner writer, is the partner writer. The producer is there to make that vision show up. I want to make what you are trying to make. Let me clear the road so I can make this thing that you're trying to make. I may have opinions if I was a producer, but no. Do what you want to, want to do. Yeah, it feels very generative. Yes. And we actually do the movie over and over and over again in order to find the gems that need to be in the movie. And none of us actually profess to be geniuses because all of the boneheaded ideas that we throw out in the room every day are just completely boneheaded. They're just, mm, it's stupid, but I'll say it anyway. And then it's like, we'll try it. We'll try many avenues, and most of them will fail. Well, it feels like you have to get through those to get to the other thing regardless. Yes. And some of those things that it's like, this is a bad idea. This is the bad version of yes. this is the springboard for yes. the good version of You're it. You're right. There's a nugget of it. It, yeah. it leads to something. But a lot of the times, for me, it's also training up the very crew that's going to make the movie. It, you're essentially training yourself to be the best person to tell this story. You know how to tell this story by the time that it becomes really clutch time. It's like, oh, man, this is it. Uh, this is very difficult to tell this story. We've gotten some right answers. We've gotten a lot more wrong answers, but... This group, whoever's in here, is the group that's going to tell this story. And we are supremely well rehearsed. We're agile. Our muscles are great for telling the story. We're the only ones who are going to be able to do this. And we're, we definitely will. And your choices then, everyone's choices are fast and correct towards the end and clever. And the opportunities show up. And it feels like that's such a well-oiled machine. By the time that we're like ready to finish the movie, everybody feels like we deserve this finish line. <laughs> we earned it uh, because we put in the work. Is there a moment in production that you feel like like there's a turning point, uh, or is it just different from? Yeah, well, it's different for different productions, but there's always a point where it's the cliche. It's the darkest part. Everybody is kind of trying to find out: is this? even a movie or something like what I feel is like there's wrong? always a this is bad maybe yes. this isn't good yeah. yes. at this point even when it's or, a movie that everybody loves in the end yeah or the confidence in it is kind of really kind of waning how do you bring how do, how do you get back from that this is the the thing i learned from actually being here for so long i've been here 18 years is that the the idea that of not ever giving up it's not just moxie it's not just courage it's that there are these other people who believe in you who knows that you know, this is not a guarantee. I believe in you, but I want you really to pull up from this deep dive. And, and just that little encouragement is going to allow you just probably enough to take a deep breath and jump in again, even though you're going to be smacked down one more. <laughs> but that's what you need. You need an entire studio to be able to say, I know, you're, you're kind of, you're taking a lot of hits, and then this is not good, but we believe in you. You're going to do this. Get back in there. Something's going to break. Something is. And, and then it doesn't. And then they say that to you again, and they say that to you. And then one day, there's one glimmer of something just breaks. And they're like, oh, wait, that was the one thing that we needed, and everything starts to fall into place. Mm -hmm. That if somebody lost their nerve in the studio, the movie would have been a disaster. But this is the belief system 
in the studio. Your, your, your collaboration isn't just about the principle of collaboration. I work with all of these people. I believe in all of them. We're all flawed human beings. No one's a genius. And if somebody yells, it's like, I need help. And I say, what do you need? I know you're busy. I know we're all busy. But what do you need? We show up. Yeah. And we help them. I do that all the time. I do it for Pete. I'll do it for Bob. I'll do it for anybody. I was just like, um, we were talking to lunchtime. None of us have time. And then like, hey, you think that you could take a look at something that I'm doing? And I was like, what, what are you doing? It's like, I have this thing. I don't know what to do with it. I was like, I'll look at it. And then I'll look at it. I don't know if this is going to help. I thought, what if this, this, that, or the other thing happened? I was like, oh, thank you. Yeah. Something like that might help that person. And also, not only that, but it actually lets that person know. It's like, I see you. I know you're struggling. I'm trying to help. Yeah. It, it makes your day just a little lighter. I mean, I feel like this is maybe diminishing it, uh, but it feels like the story of how you got to where you are is really through support and collaboration. Aside oh, from your own, Yes. You know, obviously you have to like push forward yourself and, and there is like a, an inherent talent, but I feel like even talking about the jobs that you got, it was like somebody showed your stuff to somebody else, yeah. you know, to a job. Yeah, yeah. There you are. Yeah, most uh, of the time really is people pushing me forward. And giving back to people yeah. along the way. I yeah, they, they, they're the ones who actually push me forward. People kind of say, um, I'm going to make you head of story. Uh, really? Uh, are you insane? <laughs> I've never done that job before. And then I, I own the job after that. I felt like, man, that was great. And then Pete Doctor tells me, it's like, I want you to be the co-director of my next movie. I say, yeah. <sighs> Wait, what does that mean? I don't know, so you have to kind of find out. You struggle with it, but people believe in other people in the studio, and that, that means that I want you to take on something that I know you don't even believe yourself that you should do, but I'm gonna put you there. Just like, and they're gonna go, uh, sure. And they end up surprising everybody. I guess it's seeing what's what people are good at from the outside. <laughs> yes. Uh, and you know, at least like, you were always given these kind of like deeply emotional scenes and then got to co-direct the film that is probably the most overtly emotion <laughs> about emotions yeah. I know. about personified emotions yeah uh, it's 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 very very gratifying to do but that that's the philosophy it comes down from ed himself he, um and i got that even from the, the belief that bruce tim had in me to be able to storyboard for him when i don't have that kind of mileage i'm very grateful for that that's the kind of breaks that I wish for everyone who wants a career in animation. Uh, Ed believes that uh, the people that he hires are about their potential. What this person will grow into. Mm -hmm. Because he can hire the best if he wanted to. He can hire away as many. Like, but the, the, even all of our uh, director uh, comrades here the potential of each of these partners that you hire into your movie is really what you're betting on. And that's the only way to get new stories. Yes. <laughs> and that's, that, to me, is more encouraging than just getting the A players at the top of their game. Yeah. No, there's, there's this person who's got a trajectory, and they're going to make amazing things. And we're going to be part of that journey, watching this person soar. That would be awesome. Yeah. How do you, I guess on a production, let's use like Inside Out as yeah. an example. We could talk for hours just about that, but we don't have time. <laughs> um, but how, how did you approach that? How did you approach, I guess, helping your team soar, so to speak? Uh, mm -hmm. Well, I, being ahead of story before, I tend to kind of like mind the story department as part of the um, upkeep. Uh, the emotional and and kind of career health of, of the story artist because everybody is going to get batted around and you're going to be bruised so many ways till Sunday mm -hmm. trying to make any movie. So I help there and then I'm a big uh, uh, part of writing the movie to support Pete because Pete and I would talk about the movie in, in philosophical terms in, in ways that it's mostly yearning what if? Why can't we try this? And then my voice is going to be, why can't we? Mm -hmm. And then it's like, what do you see? I will ask him. I see that it could go this way, but we've already followed this path going this way. 
and then I would be kind of his outside memory bank. I remember us trying that. I don't think we finished trying that. Can I run with that and then you go do what you need to do. I'm going to go hold up and do something. I'll show you. You don't have to like any of it. That's it. Hmm. So I will keep going to places that feels interesting to him. Sometimes it's hard to voice your creative wants because you're commanding whole armies to follow these things and make this happen, make that. May not be the right thing that you're chasing, mm -hmm. but it could be the right thing. Part of it is. And then you want to just kind of like, what if I A, B something other idea that I have? But I don't have the bandwidth to do it. There's no time. And I go like, let me take it. And then we'll, we'll do that. And then we'll trade kind of jobs. And it's like, you go do that, I'll do this. That, to me, is like um, the best um, partnership in directing. We're, in, we're never in each other's way. And yet, both of us are always trying to make the statement be true as much as possible every day. And then correct each other, too. It's like, hmm, I remember you saying that you wanted this. Is that still true? Yeah, it's, it seems like really just checking in with people, too. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we're not, humans. <laughs> yeah, neither myself or Pete are big as being bosses, you know, because I said so kind mm -hmm. of leader, because I can't get anything out of people if I'm just like that, because most of the time people will do, you know, what they feel that they can contribute, what they feel great about, what they feel they can bring. And if I just tell them, I want just this, don't bring me anything else other than that. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a part of the job that's that, but if it's always that, they're not going to survive. They're not going to want to stay. Yeah. And this is a marathon. All of these are. Yeah. How do you stay engaged? I mean, I, I, I'm getting a sense of how, which is like mm -hmm. trying so many different things and challenging each other. Uh, but do you ever feel like there are moments where you've changed something up and you're like, are you? how do you know that you're changing it because for the right reason versus kind of it not being new or it not well, being... Well, that happens. Sometimes you, you kind of doubt whether are we just changing this because we're tired of it. Mm -hmm. It works. Well, the good thing about us is that we actually show our movies uh, regularly to the studio so that if you feel that I'm trying this out, it probably is the right answer, but it could also be the wrong one. And then you show it to everybody in the company. And everybody can send you their notes. I didn't like that. I didn't understand this. Okay. Now you have to pay attention to that. Whatever you tried didn't work. Right. Or whatever you tried actually worked. And it's like, good. Now you don't have to worry about what it's doing. You know what it's doing. You can't just go on just belief. Yeah. There's just so much you can use for belief. Well, it ends up a vacuum, it seems. <laughs> well, you can you can love what you make. You yeah. always will. Yeah. But the rest of the people probably don't understand what what is that about? You don't want that. You don't want people to be confused about what you're trying to make just because, well, I like it. Well, no, this isn't just about what you like. This is about what you want to say and how well are you saying it. So if you're saying to me that you're communicating this, but nobody's getting it and you don't want to listen to it, then you're making a disastrous mistake. Hmm. So feedback is always something that we do. Otherwise, you know, um, you could you could really end up stranded with no more lifeboats. And by that I mean it's like it's too late to change anything. Movie's too broken to fix, and you're just going to have to. You will realize s certain things late. Oh my goodness, that moment really does not work. I thought it did. Uh, too late. They don't want that. It feels like what you what what I love about your work, and and I think a lot of my favorite films here. Uh, is there there's like an emotional clarity yes uh, and and I it feels difficult it feels easy when you watch it yes <laughs> and so difficult to achieve yes it is our work is to make sure that it, it becomes easy for the audience to digest and, and follow but simplicity is one of the hardest things to achieve in, in making anything because we are so good all of us are so good at doing what we do that when we try and put everything that we want in there, it doesn't become clear. Mm -hmm. Not that we were bad at it, but it's just that this needs some clarity. This needs simplicity. Now, when you go for that, 
it feels like, what do I throw out? What do I keep? That is a trial and error of trying to see what becomes a simplified, elegant way of telling the story. That takes some time because a lot of the times we like a simple story, but we also don't want it to be cliched. We don't yeah. want it to be tropey. But how can we do that job as much as we can without having to kind of cleave to known ways of doing things? Of course, we will use them. But a lot of our work is trying to give ourselves the challenge. It's like, did we do enough to make this clear? Does this feel like anything, really? Mm -hmm. Or are we just convincing ourselves that that works and it doesn't? So you have to be really tough on yourself before you release it. Because once you release it, that's it. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it feels like there is like a, a dance between specificity and like universal emotional message. Mm -hmm. Like the more specific you are, the more it seems to connect. Yeah. But I imagine there's kind of like a tipping point. <laughs> there is. Uh, a lot of the times we, we, we try and say that our gauge is to make sure that it becomes a universal, human, gettable, authentic story. And, but every time that we try something that becomes kind of like, this is understandable for everybody, it also kind of weightless. Mm -hmm. And we're like, now we've kind of missed something. Why? Because it's inauthentically general. It said nothing true about the characters in ways that is just about this character. It sounds like we're preaching, and we don't want that. So we want to make sure that these things are expressed through the character's life, mm -hmm. world, as much as we can. And, and when that happens, people recognize themselves in those characters. Yeah, I feel like everybody, and, and maybe this is just the people I come across, but I feel like the world connects with like the everybody talks about like a Pixar movie is going to make you cry <laughs> at some point and even like the most steely people that I know they won't cry at any live action film uh, but they'll cry at a Pixar movie and uh, I, I think that it says a lot about your dedication to character uh, and especially like Inside Out <laughs> like I'm yeah yeah and, and, and Pete was so uh, focused on trying to tell us an internal story. It was his. It was his world to uh, inhabit his relationship with his daughter. And because my my own daughter was older and and also babysat his daughter, so mm. we I get to tell him it's like I already went through this, Pete. You know, I I I lamented the the the, the day that my daughter left for college, uh, the day that my daughter turned from kind of daddy, 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 daddy to quiet and doesn't want to talk to you, don't want to be anywhere near you. And uh, I was telling him all these cautionary tales. And then, but then he still had his daughters, but he was already kind of kind of understanding that this, there's this heartbreak that's headed towards you if you're a parent. Your little girl, your little boy is going to change on you. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing you can do about it. They're gonna, they're gonna do this. You, you have to be there. You can't battle this with them. They're gonna have to do this. So it was really genius that it's always about the emotions of a little girl struggling with the changes, and it becomes emotional. How, how do you do that? You know, it, we struggled with that for a long time, and and I'm so glad that we we solved those problems eventually. But it was because of the leadership that Pete had and uh, his dedication to tell a story that everybody recognizes themselves in. I was that kid or I am that parent. Right. Yeah, I didn't grow up around snow or play hockey or yeah, <laughs> you know, whatever, know. personally. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm, you know, bawling at the end. Yes. <laughs> Regardless, because yes. joy and sadness. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, were, were there any uh, things that you threw out in particular that you remember? There's a lot of those that in, in the making of these things that we, we, we throw out. Um, I, there's so many, it's hard to remember. Uh, you probably remember that there's a, a Miss Unicorn in the movie that she's reading scripts. But there was a time where we just wanted to put a unicorn inside um, Riley's head in the background mm -hmm. and never explain 
that there's a unicorn in the background <laughs> who's kind of raiding the refrigerator, you know, reading a pocketbook and kind of like, but everyone kind of like talks and walks past them, excuse me. And then, but you never refer to the unicorn. It's just there. It's just kind of like, what is that thing? All the way to the end. And we felt like that would be so awesome if we can put just a unicorn over there. But eventually we decided that's going to be confusing. <laughs> it's going to be clever, but it's going to be confusing. Yeah. So we just decided. You, you follow those little impulses. Um, we had uh, the, the train of thought be lost so many ways. Every time that you write it, it never brings you where you want to go. Hmm. It's like, oh, I'm going to go over here. Oh, where do we go? And then you, and there's always nowhere. Um, there would be there was this one section wherein it was the section for um, names. It's a highly well efficient uh, uh, sector in the brain, cataloged alphabetically, cross reference all these names. There's clean and spotless, and then it's like uh, so. I'm looking for there was a point where in the story where the, the characters were trying to look for a certain person because. Riley was trying to remember this person was coming towards her. What is, what is the person's name? And it's like, I have all the names. It's like, does it, does it cross-reference with faces? Oh, you, you want the other department. We don't deal <laughs> with that. And then you go over to, to the, the, the faces department, and it's all in shambles. People are always taking breaks. The files are open, and they're all over the floor. It's like... They can't match the name to the face, and it was chaos. It's like, what? What? Uh, we're on break, and just put on out to lunch, and then they won't answer your question. Oh, I love it. That was fun. <laughs> well, Never put it in a movie. I think we got to wrap up. All right. Uh, but any closing thoughts about, I guess, working on Batman and, and kind of who you were then and who you are now and, and kind of well, what you've learned? Well, what I, what I was in Batman with the Batman crew was kind of the career opener. If it wasn't for that, really I wouldn't be in features. If it wasn't for the values that uh, the Batman uh, leadership had instilled in us, I wouldn't have qualified to be working in, in features. Because of the stories that were handled there, uh, made sure that the kind of stories that I tend to like are not just about moving the characters in zany ways or just pratfalls. Um, that was a great education. And that by the time I learned everything in, in features, uh, storytelling, I started to, to understand that it really is about your relationships with the people you work with. Very valuable. Uh, I still am friends with most of the people that I've worked with at Batman crew and then all of the colleagues I've ever um, worked with here in the studio, you know, our, our lifelong friends, our support for each other. It's not just about the title and who you report to. These are, these are bonds that allow you to support each other and be co-storytellers. Um, and it matters in, in the way that you pursue your career, the stories that you tell, how good you become, and... Uh, what future becomes for you. Yeah, it sounds like you found your people. I did, didn't I? I'm lucky. And that's Ronnie Del Carmen. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and spread the word. Batman, the animated podcast is back, baby. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your dang podcast. Now, before we go into Creditsville, USA, just wanted to take a moment to fill you guys in on the future of the podcast. After a long hiatus, new episodes will be steadily released, although the format will be shifting back to one episode every other week and only a single guest per episode. You know, I wish I had the time to track down a new Batman actor or crew member to talk about each and every episode, but it's kind of what led to me being unable to do the podcast in the first place for a while, so I hope you guys will understand the changes, and I think you'll still enjoy the show. That said, I'll do my best to keep sprinkling them in, along with fans of the show who work in animation, comedy, music, whatever, as well as some experimental episodes here and there that tap into the variety show roots of the first 20 or so episodes. Seriously, some weird stuff on the horizon. There may be smaller hiatuses along the way because work is exciting, but also very crazy these days. But make no mistake, the plan is to finish out every single episode of Batman the Animated Series and the new Batman Adventures 
and maybe some other DCAU stuff in between because I am too obsessive compulsive not to finish a project that I start. Oh, and if you want a particular guest on the show, just let them know it exists, please. There have been so many instances in the past where fans of the show connected me with guests for an interview, and then we all win. You get to hear it, and I get to do it, and we all like to do that, right? Right. I'm looking at you, John Glover, voice of the Riddler. He's on Twitter, guys. Hit him up. Let him know the show exists. Let's do it. All right, lastly, I wanted to thank all of you who reached out over the last year telling me how much the show meant to you and just kind of asking, hey, is it coming back? Or are you done for good? No? Yes? Let us know. Um, but really, it means a lot. So thank you for listening. Thank you for checking in. Thank you. Okay, now. Onto those credits you so desperately wanted to hear. Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, edited, and produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of this podcast. Thank you again to my guest, Ronnie Del Carmen, for taking the time to meet with me, Disney Pixar for allowing me to record at the studio, Lauren Davidson, Chrissy Bailey, Emily Steidel, and a huge thank you to Jeremy Sloan, who made this interview happen in the first place. Thanks, man. And of course, I'd be remiss to leave out thanking This American Life producer and my childhood best friend, even though we're vastly different ages, Tori Malatia, whose only response to bringing the podcast back was weirdly, Oh my! Oh my. I hope I wasn't interrupting something, Tori. Okay, well, thanks again for listening, you guys, and check back in a couple weeks for a new episode of the podcast. Bye-bye.